Imagine living in a time where six men kill themselves every day. And if we thought that's gonna happen in a hundred years, it sounds pretty gross, but it's actually now. Uh, you know, originally fake news starts as a critique of news that's considered to be inaccurate. It's become a term that's used now to dismiss any news that you don't like. And around one in seven young Australians uh, has a mental health condition. They are our most unwell generation that we've had. People don't accept the climate science. So if I think about how we're going to save the world, art enables us to move in that direction. This time on the podcast, we are looking at renewable energy. Energy remains front and centre of political debate. It divides those who want a faster transition away from fossil fuels and those who say the transition is not viable due to economic impacts. Renewables have long been touted as the solution to reducing our reliance on fossil fuels. And in Australia, renewable energy is growing at a per capita rate 10 times faster than the world average, nearly three times faster than the next fastest country, Germany. So why haven't renewables taken over yet? We'll find out from experts what happens if we don't make the switch to renewables and the potential difference if we do. What happens if we don't move to renewables and phase out fossil fuels fast enough? Our experts fear the failure to keep global warming under two degrees could lead to large populated areas becoming uninhabitable. If we delay the move to renewables, we won't see the behaviour change we need in communities, says behavioural scientist Liam Smith. I'm Liam Smith. I'm the Director of Behaviour Works Australia. Behaviour Works Australia is an applied behaviour change research unit working with government and private enterprises to change behaviour for individual or social good. Liam Smith, welcome. Great, great to be here. I want to ask you about renewable systems. How reliable are they actually? Can we trust them? Uh, we know that they're becoming more and more reliable, that they're becoming a greater and greater part of the grid. Some technologies are more reliable than others. Uh, and uh, um, some countries indeed have uh, situations where almost 100%, even more than 100% of their national needs is supplied through renewables at times, not all the time. So I think that question is gradually being answered by people with probably greater technical expertise than I have. But uh, certainly we're heading down that path to the point where they are more, going to become much more reliable than they have been in the past. And since they are pretty reliable at the moment then, by the sound of it, like you said, there are some countries that have, you know, use it for 100% of their needs, at least some of the time. Why, why in Australia don't we use it more? Why do you think there is still reluctance? Oh, it's a complicated question. Uh, I, I would he hesitate to guess or to, to probably add a few strings to the answer or, or a few reasons. The first I think it's some um, incumbency in existing systems. So, you know, we build power stations, they're designed to last several decades, um, that they, they are a large investment. Um, they take uh, certainly technical capability and skill that goes into running them. And therefore we're kind of locked in, you know, the path dependent on those technologies. Uh, there's probably some hesitancy to the uptake of renewables because of stories around the, their reliability, uh, I guess, Increasingly in Australia, we're getting more and more used to solar, and solar is one of those renewables that is, you know, quite variable depending on the amount of sun and 
and and yeah. and the weather and indeed where you are in Australia. And so I think probably a combination of those two things at the macro level are the drivers. Uh, but we are seeing people shift. So um, you know, while they uh, historically have been key drivers for resistance, I think those, those things are changing. And yet, so you say it is changing. And look, there are some legitimate questions to to be asked. But there are countries that are at f- far uh, further down the road than we are. Is are we dragging our feet? Does do, do renewables just need better PR? What's the issue? Pro- probably, uh, there. You know, I think renewables certainly could benefit from uh, better PR and a better reputation. Uh, amongst Australians, um, there, there are probably some other reasons uh, beyond that. I mean, I think when you say other, some countries have embraced a much more whole, wholly, that's probably a combination of the policy, but may also be some very pragmatic reasons, like connection to much larger grids or indeed much greater proportion of nuclear energy supplied as part of those systems, which are not traditionally a large part of the mix in Australia. Um, so, yeah, I, I why are we dragging our feet? It's a, it's a difficult question to answer. I mean, I know that some authors have looked at Australia and say, wow, look at all that space and all that fun. Mm. Uh, yeah, you know, you could be a, a, an export country to the world and we certainly aren't really. Um, so there's certainly possibilities, but I guess we're back to the earlier question around incumbency and, mm. uh, and also some level of resistance. does move towards more renewables and maybe gas, other technologies. What does that mean for our future? So I guess, I'm, I mean, I'm a behavioural scientist and while, and, and I guess the reason I'm talking to you is because largely we speak in, we, we deal in lots of applied contexts and energy being one of those. So I often think about what does the future look like behaviourally mm. in a world where we have a much greater proportion of renewables that may not have the base load supply that, say, coal does. And so I do think the future, and, you know, there are certainly many options in the future, and hydro, hydrogen certainly being one that's, that's got the attention of governments into the near future. Um, you, you know, there are ways in which the future may lead to changes in how we act and how we engage with the system. I guess at one level, when energy is being, if we can have a better connected grid and that, that allows exchange of energy between grids, I think that's, that's really going to be helpful in distributing the risk or, or, or the, the supply across broader networks. But that also means that people might need to uh, behave differently at times. And I think about the Monash work that we're doing in, in our local, uh, in, in, the, in the net zero work we're doing, in particular heading towards, um, well, a target of net zero. And uh, that's both at a sort of at a micro level, so there's a Monash micro group, but then also there's a Monash network, which it, where we hope to, uh, I guess, be able to manipulate our power use at times, as in users of power, um, so that we can feed in or out of a broader grid as needed. And I think that that's an area where things are really going to change. Mm. So I can see in the future times when we might need to, for example, turn the heating up because we can't keep the place cool. Um, and when I mean heating up, I mean not from you know 25 to 30, but more 25 to 26 or 27 mm. or something like that, just to create a little bit of flexibility in a system when we're drawing a lot from it. And equally, if we're producing a lot of power, however that looks, and that this is in Monash's case, a lot of it is 
is, is um, well, it's solar and battery and wind in that mix. But um, certainly when we're producing more power is that we can then export it and we might um, either say, put some storage into uh, some energy into battery storage for the time being or we can export it to other grids and they can have a change in their behavior in terms of you know use your energy now recharge your batteries now whether that's in a car or something else mm. um, or in your home batteries as, as are becoming increasingly popular at the moment as well these are things that I can see behavior really changing in the future so we'll be hopefully much more connected we'll see particularly assets like home batteries, things like the Tesla 2 or, or indeed um, car batteries will become a resource that is drawn down and feeding back into the grid as needed quite regularly. So they'll provide that security and that reliability. And so that means you and I are doing a few things differently probably. Um, uh, in, in, when there's energy, we might use it or store it. And when, when it's less not there, we might need to accept a few things that are different as well. Mm. You told us what could happen if, you know, how the future could look if we make some changes. What could our future look like if we don't? If we don't start adopting more renewables? Yeah, I guess there's, there's, there's I mean, it's kind of like the climate science argument, really. I, I, I mean, there's, there's the one argument as well. Um, you know, Australia is a contributor. We're not a huge contributor, but per capita, we're a very large contributor um, to uh, carbon emissions, etc. And, and that's leading to global change and causing very least a 1.5 or 2 degree change in Earth's temperature. And we know what that means. So that's, I mean, we continue to contribute to that, which is not great. I guess there's a reputational image as well in that Australia looks very much like a laggard, um, is, 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 is behind the up. Uh, behind the eight ball, I guess, in terms of the uptake of new smart grids and technologies that allow exchange of energy in the way we've been talking about. And very much others get ahead, both, um, I guess, it's through the technology, but then equally uh, through their economies probably start to prosper much more as well. Mm. So I think, um, yeah, I've got a, a, particularly I think it's the reputational risk, um, I think, is, is the worry in the short term, but then longer term, certainly there's the climate risk and a whole bunch of others as well. Do you think there are any areas more than others where if we don't make change uh, environmentally or in a renewable sense, uh, things could be worse than others? Like is the, is the biggest uh, area for renewable focus, for example, say uh, stopping coal, for, as opposed to anything else, we should just focus on that because if we don't, uh, the, the the path that we are going down is just too negative. The shutting of coal stations sends really important messages to community uh, to, to people about what matters, and so when you know when we see a, a power station close down and, and we see companies saying right we're divesting out of um, coal. Uh, I think that that creates momentum. Uh, in many ways, we've, we've had great momentum, not 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 necessarily for the right reasons on the back of the bushfires at the moment. Obviously, other factors are completely changing that. Unfortunately, for, for so many reasons with COVID, but uh, but certainly, uh, you know, if if COVID hadn't happened, it's almost certain that there would be a really good policy window now for some pretty significant action on climate change. And um, and so I do think, you know, getting out of coal is pro- and, and, and having policies that 
sort of take us down that path are actually really powerful signals for community to say this matters. And, you know, if I support the idea of closing it down coal, as behavioural researchers, we're often interested in, well, well, does that then lead us to do something else? Are we, are we more likely to act, do something? Are we likely to divest, you know, our superannuation? If indeed the superannuation companies let us, I've got a long exchange with my superannuation company that won't divest out of coal. <laughs> um, you know, but, but, but will it lead me to do more things that are encouraging, that are in line with the first thing I did? And we call this behavioural spillover, right? So if I do one thing, I'm more likely to do another, another, another. So if I, if I vote or, or advocate or even just support um, the idea of closing coal, am I then likely to divest out of coal? Am I then likely to, you know, switch off the light at my workplace? Am I then likely to buy an electric vehicle, etc.? So there's this question, and what we do know seems to uh, mediate those relationships is how I see myself. Mm-hmm. So if I see myself as that kind of person, I'm more likely to do more things that are consistent. And so it, it's it's a, not the best answer to your question in terms of, you know, wh- where do we concentrate? But I do think potentially if we had this, uh, um, this kind of philosophy that we want to take people on journeys in carbon um, and that, that, that don't just involve supporting reduction of coal, but a whole raft of other things that, you know, in over the sh- a shorter space of time than would be otherwise, Australia becomes coal-free. I think that's a good thing. Mm. You mentioned that if it were not for COVID, we might have a great window to talk about renewables here. Do you think we're going to lose that window? I think we've already lost it. And what will be the impact of that? Well, so I think in, in, in policy there are windows that happen um, for a whole raft of reasons. You know, GFC creative windows. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, the government can drive particular windows, and we've had good um, movement in in family violence and and some other spaces um, uh, over the past sort of four or five years. Um, but but when but those windows close, they don't stay open for a long period of time. Um, they can be driven, I think, by a whole bunch of things. So natural disaster, as the bushfires have done, is one. Um, a, a politician or a leader putting a stake in the ground saying this matters to me and I'm really going to do something about it or it can come out of community. But when they get into the public discourse and the zeitgeist, then we have a very, and they typically are fairly fleeting. They don't last years, it's usually months. Um, there are the windows for significant policy change to occur. Um, unfortunately, I think we had that window in January um, and it closed pretty quickly mm. because of COVID. It's really really quite distressing actually and uh, I mean just this week I've been in meetings talking about bushfires and bushfire recovery in terms of biodiversity sorry last week last week and and it's really distressing because they they know this intimately Mm. they've had an opportunity and they really lost it. Very strange and troubling times we are in at the moment. Liam Smith thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Paul Rashke is an economist specialising in insurance. The industry is already planning for situations in those parts of the world that might become unlivable due to global temperature rises, increasing natural disasters and catastrophic weather events. Without a move to renewables, scientists say we can't limit the temperature increase to the two degrees it needs to be. Paul has a window into what that world looks like if we don't heed the science. Hi, my name is Paul Rushke. I'm an economist at Monash University and my research 
interest is in the fields of environmental economics, political economy, and insurance economics. And um, in general, I work with large data sets on topics related to the environment, climate change, and natural disasters. Paul Rushke from Economics, thanks for joining me. Thank you. We think a lot about... uh the disasters of climate change and all the environmental uh, impacts and those terrible things. What could the, if things continue unabated uh, with with climate change, what could be the financial or economic or, or insurance outcomes of that? Those things maybe we haven't really thought about. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, the insurance industry um, has put out a number of estimates. On the one hand, they put out, have estimates about the potential increase in the frequency and intensity of climate-related natural disasters. So there's a common understanding that these events might increase in some areas of the world. So that means um, if these scenarios are are correct, we, we are going to see more hurricanes, more flooding, more heat waves in the future um, in some areas. Another trend that we are actually seeing that, you know, not necessarily related with climate change is that people are more and more moving to more exposed areas. So think about coastal areas. Um, Just look around Australia, think about how the Gold Coast looked like 50 years ago versus now. Think about Florida. Um, And so we have these demographic trends or settlement trends in addition, that might, you know, even increase the future losses for society in general, but also the future damages that um, the insurance companies might have to cover. And so are insurance companies already factoring that in? Are they already starting to prepare for maybe having to pay out for more cyclones, more heat waves? Or is this at this stage still um, uh, a, a consideration? Um, so what insurance companies do around the world, they have a number of uh, different things. First, I mean, that the most extreme reaction is to simply say it's not insurable. So there can be properties that are in, um, in, for example, flood risk zone where the insurance companies already are saying, look, we are no longer insuring you. Some insurance companies or in some countries, we see that insurance companies, you know, refuse to insure certain properties. Um, that's the most extreme form. The other possibility is that they simply increase the premium to reflect the risk. And that then makes it for people unaffordable to live there because the, the premiums are so high. And um, normally if the premiums reflect the risk. I mean, it's just making it in exposed areas, uh, making the living there it becomes extremely expensive. Um, the other thing is that in some um, countries, for example, Switzerland, the insurance companies are state monopolies. Mm-hmm. So they have a, a few more rights to intervene in how, let's say, buildings are built. Um, and they can say, okay, we have um, this combination of not just financial insurance or financial risk transfer, but also asking people to invest more money into self-protection. And then they can ask you to say, um, you know, put your house on, onto stilts, for example, or 
put in um, in your basement windows, they need to be flood proof. Otherwise, you don't get that's a precondition for insurance. So in that sense, they they factor that in. Um, another way where let, let's say the industry as a whole is um, approaching the climate change um, scenarios is on a more broader, let's say, information based um, campaign where they produce research and you know, try to inform policymakers around the world about the increasing risks. Do you think we'll start to see more places or, or areas, people who are in places that are just uninsurable? We might have some now, say in Australia, maybe areas that are really prone to bushfires, for example, or coastal areas that look like any minute now that could be swept away. As climate change does progress and we do see more things like heat waves, more cyclones that are that could impact far greater people, will we start to see more areas that are either just uninsurable or the premiums are so high that fewer and fewer people can afford to live there? Yeah, it could be the case that some areas will simply be uninsurable in the sense that, you know, if the government, for example, doesn't intervene and say we set up some cooperation with um, or some form of collaboration with insurance companies or we provide some form of insurance, then the private sector might simply say, no, we are not going to insure there or we will provide insurance, but it's capped at a certain, you know, we are not going to pay out the full um damage but a damage that you know you get you can buy an insurance and the the claim you can make is limited at let's say twenty thousand dollars you see that some european companies have that where uh, countries where you have um with your normal fire insurance for your household you can top up and get an, a natural disaster package that insures you against the whole set of natural disasters but it's state States in the insurance policy that you know if something happens, we will only pay you X amount of dollars. Not only does it sound really complicated, but it sounds like a complicated problem we're going to have to be dealing with more and more in the future as climate change progresses. Paul, that was really useful. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. No, that's fine. It was a pleasure. Definitely some food for thought there about how much we need to manage this transition. Next episode, we'll find out just what is possible in the world of renewables and what needs to change so we can get there faster. Thanks to our guests today, Liam Smith and Paul Rashke. That's it for this episode. More information on what we discussed today can be found in the show notes.